Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Holly, good morning, Tara. That last song written by Fanny Crosby. And I'm 90% sure, 95% sure, that she's the woman I read about that became, from an illness, became blind at a very, very young age. And someone, any nods? Like, yeah, that was her, okay. Um, and then later in life, someone said to her, Something like, Fanny, isn't it terrible that you had some experience of being able to see and then now you know that you lost? Wouldn't it have been better to just, wouldn't it have been better to be, to be, sorry, let me reverse that. They said to her, I'm glad at least that you could see for some of your life before you went blind. And she said something like, I wish I was blind the whole time. And the person was confused, like, what do you mean you wish you were, you wish you were born blind? And she said, because if I was born blind, then the very first person I would ever see would be Jesus. That just always stuck with me. Are we looking forward to that day that we're going to see him? That day, as this passage says, that is ever approaching. That every day we're one day closer. Every breath we're one breath closer. The hype only grows as we get closer every day, as that day draws near. And in the meantime, we can approach him with confidence. So I want to start with a question to be thinking about throughout the message. What keeps you from approaching God? What keeps you from drawing near to the Lord? And I'm guessing the person next to you might have a different answer than you do. There could be a lot of different answers to that question. What keeps you from approaching God with confidence? But I would like to propose that there would be a a word that would be used again and again and again, and it would be distrust. In some way or another, do you distrust that he's there? Do you distrust that he hears you? Do you distrust that he cares about you? Do you distrust that he wants you to approach him? That he's, that he's longing for you to come to him, and that he's a good God? What keeps us from approaching God? Depravity means hopelessly wicked. It means hopelessly sinful. And if you wanted to look into whether or not that's the condition of human beings today, you could simply go onto any video online, essentially, and just, what, go to the comments section, and you can see, okay, we, that's us. We are hopelessly wicked. But 20 years ago, 
25 years ago, you couldn't do that. You couldn't go online and, and look at the comment section. So what, what could you do to have a front row see of the depravity of human beings? What you could have done is put on TV 20 or so years ago and put on, put on a show called The Jerry Springer Show. And in that show, <laughs> what do you see almost every time? Okay, I'm not recommending that you watch the, I, think, I don't think they play it anymore. Um, but shows like that and similar, what you see is people screaming and angry and blaming everybody except for who? Themselves, right? It's always somebody else's fault of why they're there. And I saw, it wasn't the Jerry Springer show, it was a similar show that I saw, it was like five minutes of it, I probably shouldn't have watched it, I did. It was a couple years ago, and people were yelling at each other and blaming everybody, and everybody's angry, and there was a kid, I don't know, eight or nine years old, and this kid was a hot mess. Also yelling, also screaming, lots of trouble, causing all kinds of trouble in his family. And the idea that they had to try to help this kid, the host calls on somebody that's gonna help this kid. So the, the host calls out this person, and who comes out? This person who is angry and even louder than everybody else, pointing his finger, shaking his head, circular hat, shiny boot-wearing drill sergeant. And that drill sergeant screams at this nine-year-old, eight-year-old kid. And do you know what he said? And do you know how the kid responded to that? You're going to have to wait till the end of the message to hear it. <laughs> I haven't done that in a little while, right? So I got to keep you. I got to keep you guessing. Until then, let me remind you of what we're doing. We're going through the book of Hebrews, reminding the Hebrew Christians, Jesus is better. Don't turn back to the old covenant. He's the fulfillment of it. He's better than that, than you could ever dream. Keep going despite the persecution that you've experienced and likely will experience around the corner. We'll get to that either next week or the week after. And as we continue in Hebrews 10, keep pressing on toward Jesus. He's worth it. And the, that message rings throughout the centuries, including today for us. Jesus is better than anything you used to live for, than anything you could possibly live for in the future. He's worth giving whatever you have to give away to get. Now, it, this reminds me of if I had to pick one favorite verse. I think I've been consistent with this for at least five years. But one favorite verse, it would be Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And I just loved stopping there and be like, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has so that he could go and buy that field. Now look, in every, in every parable and analogy, you can, it's, it's giving us a truth here that the kingdom of God is like a treasure that is worth far more than anything or anyone else. You can't buy it. Scripture is very clear about that. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. God wants to give, he's pleased, he, the Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. And it is a treasure worth pursuing above anything, anyone else. Jesus is better. We'll say it every week as we continue to go through this book. We're getting towards the end, isn't that? Has it been going a little fast? For me, it has. Summer break probably helped with that, getting into the Psalms. But Jesus is better. Remember that this morning. He's better than your health. 
He's better than your dreams for the future. He's better than whatever success you've had or failures. He's better than the future. He's better than your present circumstances and moods. He's better than any knowledge or wisdom you can gain. He's better than any money. He's better than any relationship. He's better. He is the life that we're looking for. And he wants us to approach him. In fact, the main idea of the message today in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is, since God has done so much to grant us access to himself, let's go to him. Helping others do the same. This is what, this is what we see in the passage. Since God has done so much, you go, look through Hebrews 7 through 10 and all the foreshadowing of the old covenant and all that required and all that Jesus has done to make it so that we can unhindered approach the eternal God. And guess what? He doesn't want us to do that on our own. He also wants us to encourage, stir up one another, bring others along with us. So that leads us to the direction of the message in verses 19 through 23. It's about confidently approaching our God. And in these verses, we see a real quick reminder of why, of, sorry, of, of, yeah, why we can approach him. And then secondly, a little bit into why we should continue to approach him. And then in verses 24 to 25, not just for us to approach him, but also to encourage one another, to stir up one another to love and to good works. We do that together. So first, confidently approaching our God in verses 19 through 23. We see why we can approach him, and then we'll start talking about why we should continue to approach him. So why we can, he summarizes it in verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So stop there a second. He's saying, remember why we can approach him, all of what we've talked about so far. He says in verse 20 that Jesus opened up for us a new and living way. And before we mention how he did that, just think about that for a second. Jesus opened for us a new and living way to God. You know, I've missed this before in reading, in reading Hebrews. The very path to God is alive. Did you catch that in there? He opened up a living way. David says in Psalm 16, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. The path to God is full of life. As God himself indwells believers, he gives us life. He gives us new longings. He gives us new goals. He gives us a new heart to love him and to love others. And the path to heaven is full of life. It's full of fulfillment. Even if your life externally and what the world will say looks like a mess. You don't have, you're, you're, you're economically a mess. Maybe your relationships aren't going well the way you'd, you'd like them to go. Maybe there's family issues, fill in the blank, but there's life for a Christ follower because of who we're following, because of what we know what's coming, and because of the God who lives in us. He gives us life. And we shouldn't be surprised that the one who created life 
is the one that can give us a meaningful, fulfilling life now. God's the one that, he's the author of life. And he's the one that gives us life now. He even says, Jesus says, and try to find this in any other religion leader of any kind. They'll all say, look, look to these rules, look to these commands, do this, do that, to find life, to be on the right path. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He said elsewhere, I am the resurrection and the life. It's Jesus. So how did he get us on that path of life that leads to life? He tells us in verses 19 through 21. Verse 19, by the blood of Jesus. It's by his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 20, through the curtain that is his flesh. What curtain is he talking about? The curtain that divided the holy of holies from the holy place in the temple, the house of God. The curtain, the, the very presence of the curtain that divides God from mankind tells us there's a barrier in between. We talked about the sin barrier last week, right? That keeps us from approaching God just as we are. Nope. Got to be cleansed, got to be forgiven, got to be made whole to enter into God's presence. And Jesus, by his shed blood, by his body, by his, his body broken, that is through this curtain, the flesh, ripped that curtain from top to bottom so that we have access to God through Jesus, our great priest. The one who represents mankind to God is no longer the fallible and temporary priest that would do sacrifices year after year and again and again and would change. And after that person died, the next person would come. Jesus, our great high priest, who's also our king, by the way. That's why he mentioned Melchizedek. I'm not going to get back into all that. Our great priest king, once and for all, laid himself down on the altar, if you will, and died that we may be able to enter into God's presence always because of his once and for all sacrifice for us. He's reminding us this is why we can approach him because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is. We can approach God. He continues to tell us why we can in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So, you hear the facts of all that what Jesus has done so that we can approach God. And now he's saying why you can do so confidently because he has washed us clean. We can have clean consciences. Not just knowing the facts, but wait a minute. God has changed me, and I know I'm forgiven, and I know he wants me to approach him, and I know who he is. We can have clean consciences from an evil conscience that has to do with think think more along the lines of a guilty conscience why might you not approach God is it because you think there's still something you have to do to be made right there's still a guilty conscience there's still something that you have to fix is that why you can't approach him because he says for believers for Christians the word Christian simply means Christ follower and for Christ followers he tells us that we can have faith that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience, that he's washed our bodies with pure water. So, 
This means that even though, because we continue, right, we continue to make mistakes, we continue to sin, and so it's not that I have to go to God to be washed clean once and for all every time I sin. What he's talking about is even though I'm aware that I do, I can have a clean conscience because I know what Christ has done. And I know my position before God as innocent and spotless and able to approach the Lord. I know my position. I no longer stand guilty under him. So then your question might be something like, then how come believers, how come we're supposed to still confess our sins to God if we are, as Hebrews has made so clear, Jesus has forgiven us once and for all, for all time. So then why do I have to confess to my brother or my sister? Why do I have to go to God and say, Lord, I know, I know you forgave me once and for all, but you know what, you know what I did last week? You know what I did yesterday. You know what I thought this morning, and so I just want to confess that to you. Why do we do that? <laughs> Can I tell you why? It's not because we have to get into the family of God. We already are. It's because we are in the family of God. And I think the best way to explain this would be just a little analogy. Let's say you're a parent. Say you have kids. Let's say one of your kids, let's say your brother, punches his other brother. So your parent, you got a kid, he's, he's, there, there are two boys, the one of them hits the other one. What do you hope happens as a brother, as a parent, sorry? What you hope happens as a parent is that the brother that did the punching, you know, goes to the brother that he punched and apologize. Maybe it was the other person, egging him on, I'm not gonna get into all that. But they should apologize for punching the brother, right? And then, what would you also love to see as a parent? You would love the brother that did the punching who apologized to his brother to, get, to then go to you, right, as the parent and say, look, this is what I did. I punched so-and-so, and I'm sorry about that. What just happened? Did that brother just gain access into the family? And, and No. In representing the family, that's not what our family does. We don't punch each other. That's just not what we do. And so when we do, we want to we we make it right. We want to we apologize. And so that's what we do. When we wrong, when we're, we want to be held accountable, we want to confess to one another, and we want to go to God, and we want to confess those things, and continue on in this journey and turning from our sins and walking towards the Lord. We can approach him with a clean conscience in that way. Now, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, can I propose two positions that you're in right now? One is, you have a guilty conscience, and you don't really know what to do about it. You've tried. You've tried, you've tried confessing to people about it. You've tried being a, a good person as best you can. Maybe you've tried volunteering. Maybe you've, I don't know. What does it look like? Trying to be okay with yourself, even though you know you're not the kind of person even that you think other people should be. Forget about God's standards and God's law, right? You can go through the Ten Commandments and be like, I've, I've messed up like all of those. But even, if, even all of that aside, your own standard of what a human being should be, you haven't done that. You haven't lived up to that. And so what do you do about it? How do you clean your conscience? I don't have an answer for you apart from Jesus. Can I just say that? <laughs> or maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus, but you don't really feel guilty about those things that you do anymore. 
It doesn't really bother you anymore. The Bible calls that a seared conscience. Where you got to the point where it doesn't really affect you. Maybe it's the same type of sin that you've done over and over and over and over again to the point where it doesn't really affect you anymore. And you think, you think it's fine. I'm going to read to you a quote from David Paulison's book, All Things New. He talks about how somebody gets to having a, a seared conscience. He says it takes a lot of practice, propaganda, social reinforcement, persistence, and denial to sear the conscience. I'm going to say that again because it's gold. It takes a lot of practice, propaganda, social reinforcement, persistence, and denial to sear the conscience. You hear what he's saying? It takes the world telling you that's okay. It takes you telling yourself that's okay over and over and over and over and over again until the point where you don't feel guilty about it. And can I tell you, that's one of the most dangerous places to be when you don't think there's any need for forgiveness. So if you are in a place where you, where, where you don't feel guilty anymore, or if you're in a, because of a seared conscience, or if you're in a place where you know, you know you're guilty and you don't know how to handle it, you don't know what to do to get a clean conscience, the answer to both of those is Jesus. The answer to both of those is going to him and confessing to him and asking him for the once and for all forgiveness that he gives so freely that we've been reading about in Hebrews. So I want to say, as we say every week, whatever prayer request you might have, anything at all, people will be ready to pray with you in the corner over here. Anything at all, if specifically it has to do with the fact that you know you're guilty and you don't know what to do about it, We'd love to, to pray with you and talk to you about Jesus and how he forgives and how he cleanses our conscience. It's such a beautiful thing. And we'd love to pray with you about it. Only Jesus. He's the only solution. He's why we can approach God. And then he gets to, in verse 23, why we should continue to approach him. Not just why we can, why we should. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. I want to break down that sentence. Can I do that? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let me stop there for a second. Let us hold fast. That means to cling, to hold on to something tightly. Tightly grasping something. He's saying, hold on tightly. To what? To your confession. What is your confession? To say it very simply, your confession is what God has said about himself and you. Your confession is, is the gospel. The word confession is a two-part word. Of The first part means same, sameness, one of the same kind. And the second word is word, same word. As in you are confessing, you are, you are professing the same thing God has said to be true. We hear the gospel of Jesus coming and living and dying and rising for us. And that story, when we confess, we're making his words our words. We internalize it. His I'm part of that story. And we, confess, we, we proclaim the truth of God. Let's hold fast to that confession, to, that, to the gospel of Christ. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 
That means without being moved. That means to be stable. That means to be fixed. Because look, we're going to be tempted to get away from this gospel, to not hold on to it tightly, to let it go, to go to something else. We're going to be tempted to quit when God doesn't do things the way we want him to do them. When God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to answer our prayers. We're going to be tempted to quit when the devil keeps lying to us, whispering in your ear that God doesn't hear, that God doesn't care, that you're wasting your time, your precious years of your life in following after Christ and doing church. The lie that all of it's just a fairy tale. We're going to be tempted to believe those lies. We're going to be tempted to believe those lies when God is not our treasure. When he's not the one we're pursuing with all of our hearts and our minds. And when, and when we don't have people around us, when we don't have the church to spur us on, to encourage us, and to stir us to love and to good works. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, no matter what. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Because God is trustworthy. I hope you have some people in your life that you can trust, like really trust. But let me tell you, God is the only one that we could say without a shadow of a doubt, 100% is trustworthy, is faithful, has never, will never go back on his word, will always be true. It says of him in Numbers chapter 23, God is not a man that he should lie. Ouch. <laughs> God is not a man that he should lie. Remember back in Hebrews 6, it's impossible for God to lie. We can trust him. This is why we can hold fast without wavering. He's trustworthy. All that he said, it's true. It's right. We can believe him. Can I stop a second? Because maybe some of you are thinking, okay, I hear that. It says that he's trustworthy. But how, do, how can I really know I can trust God? Let me, let me ask you a question in response to that. How do you grow to trust anybody? Think about, that's a good question, isn't it? Why do you trust the people that you trust? What are the factors involved with trust? I'm going to give you what I believe is the answer. I heard it about 10 years ago from a pastor in New Jersey, my home church, growing up. He said there's two factors with trust. It's time, there's one. Consistency, there's two. It's time plus consistency. Over time, why do you trust someone? Because over time, you found that they are consistent. Consistently what? Consistently sincere, consistently truthful, consistently not manipulative or trying to deceive you, consistently for you, consistently, tr consistently trustworthy over time. That's how we grow in trusting people. That makes sense? That's true, isn't it? So now put, put God in the picture. How, how long has God been trustworthy? He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega, and he's constant. He's never lied. He's never let anyone down. He's never gone back against his word. We, why can we hold fast the, the, co the confession of our hope without wavering? Because God is the one who has told us these things. 
For he who promised is faithful. So we can approach him. We can approach him. What does approaching God look like in your life? There's so many directions we could go with this conversation of how do you approach God? And what's, what's going well right now in your life in approaching him? We could talk about approaching God through singing to God, through gathering with the people of God, through hearing his word, through teaching. I want to talk about prayer. We've been talking about prayer a lot recently. I'm just not going to stop, I don't think. For a long time, I've heard people say, if you get up early in the morning before your day starts and you just devote some time to God, I'm not going to tell you how much time, just devote some time to him, to talk to God, that's what prayer is, and watch how that affects you. Watch how that changes you. I can, I'm going to say now, I have not historically been consistent with this, been good at this, because it feels like death to get up early in the morning, doesn't it? The alarm clock goes on, and I, I can find a million reasons to say, nope, not this morning, right? And in one sense, it's true. It doesn't matter when you do it. It doesn't have to be early in the morning. But man, I found, can I just speak from my own experience for a second here? For the last couple weeks, making that decision, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go out and talk to God. It's going to be harder in the winter because I love walking, and it's warm out, and I can do that. I don't know what I'm going to do in the winter. But just getting up, approaching God in prayer. Listen to God. Listen to, listen to his word, then just talk to him. I just talk to him. I talk to him about my day. I talk to him about my life. I talk to him about what I just heard in his word. And that can transform the rest of the day. Prayer doesn't have to be this added burden that we put on our agenda and thing to do. It's something that transforms the rest of our lives, the rest of the day. God can meet us there. Approach him. We approach him. Talk to each other about what's, what's, work, what's going well in your approaching God recently. For me, that's been, that's been helping a lot. Why we can continue to approach God. Since he has done so much to grant us access to himself, let's go to him, and then he doesn't stop there, helping others do the same. That's what he gets into in verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice throughout the whole passage, it's communal. Let us, we, our. It's never on our own. We need each other. We cannot do this by ourselves. And so he says, let us, let us stir up one another to love and good works. Before he gets to the stirring up to love and good works, he says, let us consider. As in, it can take some thought. Consider. That word has to do with a, a thorough pondering. Thinking through deeply a matter. When I'm trying to, if I'm trying to go around and stir up and encourage the church to love and good works, if I just go up to you and I don't really know you at all and say, like, you should do this, 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 this in your life. This needs to change in your life. And I don't really know a thing about you. How's that going to go? Not really well. But the people in our lives, the people that we are committed to, that we know that we're digging into relationship with as we pursue the Lord together, we can consider, we can think about, what can I say to this person? To stir them up to love and to good works. How can I help them? What can I do? 
He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's be a church that does that with the people that you're really doing life with. It's communal. And then secondly, it's consistent, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can I say again? I love the end of that. As you see the day drawing near, either your last breath or the king returns. Every day we're getting closer. Every day, closer to seeing the king in all his glory. The hype only grows to encourage one another, to care about what really matters, to live for what really matters, to have Christ as our treasure. Stir up one another. Don't neglect the habit of some of not meeting together. Let me start by being the first to confess there are times, I said it when we did pre-service prayer this morning, prayed about it, there are times I get up and I just don't want to come. Can we be honest about that? I'd rather sleep. I'd rather not have to think about, like, what is everybody else going through? How can I help this person? Sometimes it's just, I just want to be selfish and do what I want to do. Am I alone in that? No? Can we acknowledge? It's, it can be tough. To care about other people is work. That takes work. It's not always going to be easy. But man, it's the best thing in the world. There's nothing better than loving God. What's what Jesus said? I'm confessing. I'm just same thing Jesus said, becoming more and more real. Loving God and loving other people. It's the best thing in the world. I know it is. It's life-giving. It means dying to myself a lot to say yes to God and to say yes to what he's called me to do. And part of what he's called me and us to do is don't neglect meeting up together. Don't neglect the church. Don't neglect it. I want to choose to honor God, to have voices in my life, and to be that voice for others. Let's be that. Let's be that for each other. I don't think it's an accident that this passage right here about not neglecting, as is the habit of some, to meet together comes right before what we're going to see. It's either next week or the week after. I should know the answer to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> of one of the, the strictest, harshest warnings in Hebrews. It's been growing. Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6. Then you get to 10, and it's like, whoa. One of the harshest warnings you'll see. And it comes right after this warning of, remember, you need each other. Don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together. Don't neglect it. We want to approach him and we need each other to do that well and to do that consistently. Right? Okay. So some of you are like, I've just been waiting for the end of the story that you brought up at the beginning and how you're going to tie that in. So here you go. TV show that I was watching. People yelling at each other. This kid also yelling very loudly, obnoxious, causing all kinds of trouble. They thought the way to help out this kid would be to bring in the drill sergeant. He's louder, he's angry, his head's shaking, he's pointing, circular hat, shiny boots, there he is, drill sergeant, screaming his head off at this kid. 
just right away, on the stage, pointing, like walking towards him, screaming at him. You know what he says? He says, kid, unless you want me to be your dad for the next three months, and then there was, there was a pause. Why? Because the kid immediately said, yes. The drill sergeant says, unless you want me to be your dad, the kid says, I do. And the drill sergeant didn't know what to do. I don't think that had ever happened to him before. He was speechless. And he said, you want me to be your dad? And the kid says, the kid says, yeah, I've never had, I've never had a dad before. I would love that. The drill sergeant didn't sign up to be the kid's dad that day. He didn't sign up to adopt that eight or nine-year-old. And the kid was so longing and looking for somebody to care about him and be consistent. Why do I bring that up? Because God, our Father, wants us to approach him. He's not an angry, yelling, pointing finger drill sergeant that just wants us to get our act together and clean up our lives and then move on for three months or whatever. He's called us to himself forever. And he's patient. And he's kind. And he's caring. And yes, he disciplines, but always perfectly out of love. More of that's coming in Hebrews about the perfect discipline of God. Our fathers, maybe they tried hard, but they messed up in some ways. All of them to some extent. You can only model God the Father so well. But he wants us so much that he did what he did. This is our God. This is our God that we can approach with confidence. Because of Jesus, God the Son, who took our sin, forgave us once and for all, and created this new and living way to God. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to start by confessing again, and Lord, I know I don't speak on my own here. Would you forgive us, forgive me, Lord, of not always wanting to honor your name, not always wanting to give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you deserve. Not always wanting to obey you. Not always believing that I'm made to worship you, to draw close to you. And to do that with my brothers and my sisters, this family that you've made. To not always agree or acknowledge that I need them. That we need each other to stir up each other to love and good works, to urge one another strongly to be on that path, that narrow way that leads to life. Jesus, thank you for making that way, for making a way when there was no way, for calling us your family, 
that we can approach you unhindered. And God, would you help us as that day just gets closer to be faithful to your word, to be faithful to this command you've given us, to show up. God, it can be so hard. We're so, we're so fickle, God. You know it's true. And you care for us and you grow us with your patience and your gentleness, your goodness. You just don't let go. Thank you, Jesus. Because, God, I think we would if it was up to us. If it was just up to us, I think we would. But you are faithful. We can cling to you. We can have confidence and be unwavering in our hope because of you, Jesus, the perfect representative of men and women to God. You've saved us. God keeps saving us. Help us, Lord Jesus. And God, I, pr I pray as our, as our tribe season starts up, as we are committing to do life with one another for this next year, would you help us see that as an opportunity to be a disciple? We look at your disciples during your time, Lord, those 12 that were committed to each other, committed to you. A mess, but committed. <laughs> And help us, God, to know each other well enough that we can consider, ponder, think about deeply how we can stir up each other, how we can speak into each other's lives truthfully, lovingly. May the world see it, to see the love we have for each other and know that we belong to you, Jesus. God, we need you so much. Would you do what none of us can do on our own? Would you do what no sermon, what no songs, what only you can do, Jesus? Do it in our hearts. Do it while there's time. We pray in your name.